by for Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors with your host, Drew Kirby. Hey, this is Luke Holmes. I am Morgan Wallen. I'm Riley Green. I'm Travis Denning. Hey, I'm Aaron Lewis. Hey, it's Luke Bryan. I'm Tim McGraw. What's up? This is Ian Munsick. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Welcome in. It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. If you have any questions, as we're getting to the point of the year where you're starting to think about getting your final push in on the deadline for the licenses and uh, and all this, you can ask us any questions inside the radio station's app. Just click the message button and we'll get those and get them to Game and Fish, which uh, Janet and Justin with us from Game and Fish this week. Uh, lots going on and deadlines are approaching. That's right, Drew. Um, just as a quick reminder for everyone, May 31st is the application deadline for those big game species that we repeat over and over again. So just make sure that if you're interested in hunting um, this fall that you meet that deadline of May 31st. All the information is online. The deadline's the 31st. When are the licenses actually drawn? You know, um, the dates are tentative, but usually by mid-June. So June 15th, we will have those results out. They are posted um, on the website. You can go through the Game and Fish portal and, and get your information. And, and hopefully everybody that puts in will be successful, although we know this year might be a little bit more challenging than others. Mid-April is when the commissioners had their season-setting meetings. And we'll touch on those in just a couple of minutes. But... Uh, Justin, you guys have been out on the ground now. Uh, most of or a lot of the snow has melted away, and you're now able to see a little bit better about what the situation looks like in the Casper region as far as the wildlife. And what have you guys found so far? Well, we found here in the Casper area, we kind of largely escaped the real severe winter losses that other parts of our state underwent. So, you know, between... Our, our folks like Janet, our info education folks, folks like you, Drew, that help us get the word out. You know, there's been an absolute ton of publicity on the severity of this winter. And, and for good reason, you know, like we talked earlier, there are parts of the state. It was the worst winter on record going back to 100 plus years of, of recorded weather history. So some losses were pretty catastrophic in parts of the state. That has really resulted in a lot of questions from the public. I mean, every day my phone rings, I get a call from a hunter asking, hey, how did, how did our animals fare this winter? Where should I put in for an antelope or a deer tag and that sort of thing? So it's certainly on a lot of folks' minds. To get around to answering your question, Drew, you know, we largely escaped really tough winter losses here. You know, we, we had the good fortune of having some collared animals, some collared deer and antelope in areas west and south of town and, and um, and some of that data was really instrumental in, in helping us kind of see how they got through. And, and, and really, we didn't really have any significant, you know, winter losses above and beyond what's normal. We're always going to lose a, a fair amount of, of animals every winter. That's just the cost of, of being wildlife in, in the state of Wyoming. But we, uh, we think we got through okay. So uh, we, we've heard the, the stories over and over how when the commission came out with their season settings that there were a lot of deer permits or licenses that weren't going to be there that normally would have. What about in, in our area? Did, did we lose quite a few licenses for this year? We did. So, yeah, we cut several thousand just in, in the Casper region, just in, in country that we manage. And 
just for your listeners, you know, I mean, that's that's areas about 50 miles west of Casper, and then that goes all the way east to Lusk, and then clear north to the Black Hills. So, um, a lot of a lot of central and, and eastern northeast Wyoming. Um, you know, we cut several thousand antelope licenses, and in some cases, antelope populations were kind of already struggling. But a lot of it was really out of an abundance of caution. Um, you know, it, it was, by all accounts, a tough winter, even in the Casper area, and especially as you got west of Casper, some pretty unprecedented snow conditions. So it was really out of an abundance of caution. We kind of figured, you know, let's just be safe. And if, if animals make it through, we can always issue more licenses next year to continue to manage those herds to our objective. And and that's kind of what we found. You know, we've um, here in, in April and early May, we uh, a lot of our folks are spending a lot of time out out of town checking. We check our sage grouse lex every spring, and that gives us a really good opportunity to kind of assess just general wildlife conditions, habitat conditions, et cetera. And we also even put an airplane in the air for a few days, um, just kind of looking for signs of winter mortality. And and you know, not only do we not see widespread winter losses, but we also seen uh, a, a fair amount of actually live animals on the hoof so so it's it's been good so of those that you saw and like physically laid eyes on or had them collared and you're able to to figure that out how does the do the herds look are, are they healthy at this point yes and no i mean it, healthy from the standpoint of you know i think I think in our area, those that that are alive now, they're they're going to make it. It's a little bit different story in in some other parts of the state where where the winter conditions were really really reluctant to let up um, in places like Pinedale and Lander and Bags and stuff like that. And so in in those cases where there was still quite a bit of snowpack on winter ranges, even clear up into the end of April, there's a chance that we still could lose some animals, even you know even up until you know, the end of May, basically. And I think one of the key things that we'll be looking for, Drew, is is the fawn versus doe ratio. When those fawns hit the ground, how many are we seeing? You know, what does what does the success rate look like there? And that will be a pretty important tell for us. And just to circle back, you talked a little bit about license reductions. And, you know, um, in the April commission meeting, uh, we reduced the mule deer licenses that we issue across the state by 43%. So that is a pretty, pretty big number. And, you know, I just want to remind folks that as Justin and I sit here and talk, we're talking specifically about the Casper region, um, like he has said several times. And, and if you kind of think about what we went through this winter and, you know, gosh, the stories, how bad it was, think about what it must have been like in some of these other areas that really did have a higher mortality. So um, pretty tough times for sure. And, and we're, we're super glad that, that we have great wildlife managers on the ground who can assess all of this information and, and do right for the animals and put out the right number of licenses so that the public still has an opportunity to harvest big game animals across the state. And, and we're looking forward to hopefully a, a good fall. Justin, the last time we talked, you actually said that winters that, that we've had like this are actually good because of what it does for the habitat. And have you seen a lot of the areas that maybe were not doing so well habitat-wise over the last couple of years really rebound? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So so they can be, and and it can be, it's, it's one piece of the puzzle, right? So when we get lots of snowpack, not only in the mountains, but down in the the lower basin country. Yeah, it can really give habitat conditions a, a shot in the arm in terms of when you retain a bunch of soil moisture. You know, most of the most of the Wyoming plants and 
like say if we're talking about big game, a lot of the shrubs that they depend on really, really require that spring, that that late winter spring moisture for the bulk of, of their growth for the year. You know, there was a lot of moisture in the soil just as things started to warm up. For example, out west of town where I've been out checking sage grouse legs, there are dozens upon dozens of stock ponds that are full of water that have not had any water in for the last four years. So that just tells me in a lot of places, the water table's up. And so green up, is, it's been slow to come this year, much slower than normal, but it's finally getting here. So yeah, we think the habitat's gonna get a shot in the arm. We think conditions are gonna look pretty good. Um, one of the things though to bring up as we talked about some of the, the latent effects of the tough winter is, is a lot of times out of this tough winter, we do see lower fawn production the following year because some of those pregnant moms, you know, whether it's deer or antelope, you know, both, you know, they endured a pretty tough winter. And so sometimes we'll see fawns with low birth rate weights and things like that. And it tends to lead to, you know, poor nutritional conditions. So it tends to lead to reduced survival. So in a lot of cases, um, following a tough winter, we do see depressed fawn production for a year, but that's a, that's that lag effect. But then hopefully things should look really good as, as females go, go through this summer and enter next winter. Hopefully they'll be in pretty good shape. When we started the rut, which is really mating season for deer and antelope, we it wasn't long after that when the weather really took a turn. So they were fairly uh, early in their pregnancies. Does it matter of the stage for when that cold weather hits or is when it gets nasty, it just is nasty and they just don't have that opportunity to, to eat and grow like they normally would? It's not so much a matter of when the weather hits, it's more the duration and it's really, but most important, more important than anything is what kind of nutritional condition were these animals in as they entered winter? So we actually had a pretty decent year last year. It was kind of a hot summer towards the end, but you know, there's a lot of condition or, you know, range conditions that were in pretty good shape last year with some good spring moisture and that sort of thing. And so we did have animals enter last winter in pretty good shape. And I think that was the, the thing that really, really helped some of them get through this winter. You know, if last year was a really just horrible, nasty, dry drought year, I think even in the Casper area, we would have seen a lot than we did. So really over the last few years, it's either one or the other. It's either full on winter or it's a hot, dry summer. So we'll, it'll take probably a couple of years for us to really figure out how this last couple of years have affected, right? Yeah. I mean, to, to re, for, for populations to really rebound, you know, you need a few good years of the stars aligning and that's, that's kind of good wet springs um, you know, and, and summer moisture and then, and honestly, even fall moisture can be really, really important. You get a little bit of fall green up and that, that can lead to, um, just some more forage production right before winter hits green stuff under the snow, that sort of thing. And then, and then if you can couple that with a mild winter and, and have a little bit higher than normal winter survival, you know, that's when conditions can be ripe in Wyoming for really growing deer and antelope. So we've talked a little bit about the fact that in the mid-April, that's when the commission uh, had the season-setting meetings. That's not their only meeting throughout the year, and we'll talk about that another time. They meet multiple times throughout the year for multiple topics, whatever it is. But when they're meeting for those couple of days in April, what information are they looking at to set the seasons? I mean, is it everything we basically have talked about where it's fawn production, it's 
weather, it's, you know, what the, the, the does are looking like? A lot of the information that they're getting is, you know, presented in a PowerPoint presentation with the numbers that the managers on the ground have recommended. If they have any questions or concerns, we have those managers there that are, are able to answer any questions on, you know, gosh, why did you cut this many licenses in this area? What are you seeing? What are the conditions of your animals? And that information goes out. But one of the things that I don't think people actually see is the amount of public content that those individuals take into consideration, that the commission is listening to. You know, the, the public through our entire season setting meetings in March, they get the opportunity sub to submit comments, um, whether that be online or at a meeting um, written form, and they read all of those comments from the public. And so if you submitted a concern, they read it and they took that into consideration when choosing to either approve or amend what the Game and Fish Department has recommended to the commission be approved. So I, that even drives it home more how important it is for the public to speak. When you guys offer up these open meetings to, to show up, even if it's a bad year or a good year, because, you know, you say when things are bad, the meetings get better. But when things are good, the meetings, people don't really show up that much. Yeah, you know, you're, you're spot on. We have um, public meetings all year round that nobody comes to. And, and you kind of end up sitting alone in a room for a, a period of time. When, and maybe a couple of, of the folks who are always actively involved come and talk about things. But um it is important to always have, you know, your foot kind of in the door to know what's going on, to be here to talk with us on the ground. And, you know, um, while you can attend um, a lot of those commission meetings um, and voice your opinion there as well as those public meetings ahead of time, um, it's it's just it's always really great to, I think, hear the information for your area um, get to know your local biologists or managers, your local game wardens, and kind of hear because you've heard today a lot about um, how different conditions were across the state and how that does affect things. So, you know, just because you're super um, tired after shoveling the three feet of snow in your driveway, maybe that doesn't necessarily equate to some of the conditions that the animals are seeing out on the ground. So it's, it's important to, to keep all of that information at the tip of your fingers. Well, it's, all, it's really challenging. So when, when you work for the Game and Fish and you, you have these public meetings and you make these wildlife management decisions, you know, like we talked when we very first got together, you know, it's, season setting is a year-round process for us. It's certainly not just the spring. That's when it kind of culminates. But we're, you know, our, our guys and gals are out there all year long talking to landowners talking to hunters talking to um you know outfitters you name it and so so you're you're kind of synthesizing that public input you get throughout the course of the year and then and then when you couple that with all your data and that's when you make those recommendations but it's always kind of challenging because when we do have these public meetings or folks do show up to the commission and this year was was a was a great case in point there was actually a lot of controversy with some of our season proposals and that's because there's just a lot of vested interests in wildlife management in the state and and a lot of the decisions that we have to arrive at are difficult and they can be controversial we have to balance the needs of of, of public hunting with landowner issues with outfitting with just in and obviously the, the the health of the herds and so um opportunity you name it and so it can be challenging and 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 
I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, some folks that do come to our public meetings or do go to our commission meetings to talk about it, they don't always get their way. We darn sure try as hard as we can to listen and to to really seriously, critically think about all the public input we get. And we do make decisions based and changes based on that public comment sometimes, but sometimes we don't. It just really depends on the issue. And if you don't let your voice be heard, then you can't really complain when it doesn't turn out like you think it should be. So uh, definitely more of a reason for you to get involved after the seasons or before the seasons so that, uh, you know, you got your your voice in on the decision-making. And and uh, we definitely want to, uh, you know, thank everybody that has to make all these decisions because that's a lot of pressure. You know, you got a whole state of hunting that, you know, you decide on a couple of days how, how it's going to go. But uh, we'll talk more about the, the commission and, and how they go about their – their meetings and, and ideas in the future. But Janet and Justin, we do appreciate it. And as always, we'll uh, we'll talk with you next week. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Drew. It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Welcome back. It's Drew along with Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. And Brian, this weekend, uh, we're going to talk more about how the fishing tournament went at Glendo, the stampede round number one in just a few minutes. But this weekend, I know that... Uh, I, after being out there for one weekend, know what I need to come through Rocky Mountain Discount Sports to pick up because I wasn't 100% prepared for what was about to happen, and especially when it comes to fishing equipment. Yeah, and uh, you know the nice part about uh, you know transitioning from spring to summer is you know a lot of the techniques we're doing in the spring will work moving into the summer, but there's a whole new whole new broader line of what's going to work you know moving forward. So you know one one thing that uh, that I wanted to to bring is because we have a lot of young anglers or maybe even novice outdoorsmen that that listen to this show, and they always hear about fishing line and maybe they hear braided or monofilament or or uh, the carbon anything like that but what are the difference between those three and why would someone choose one over the other well traditionally like back in the day right is is just the the traditional monofilament you know that's just your regular berkeley trialene it's, it's got some stretch to it it's the only thing we knew for a long time and it always performed really well as technology got a little bit better uh, they went to, a, you know, probably the braided line probably came out next. And a braided line is is a kind of a, a woven uh, a line that adds some additional strength. Um, it's a, it's hard to cut, uh, a little bit harder to manage, and but it has its its, its place in, in the fishing world. The guys on the bass circuit, for instance, a lot of those guys are using a braided line because uh, they're fishing, you know, lily pads and some of the some weed beds and that kind of stuff. Where if they get a lure stuck, they want to be able to pull it out, or they don't want any stretch when they actually do that big hook set on a on a bass. So uh, in that world, it works good. On the walleye world, um, I use it a lot for slip bobbers. I like it on the slip bobbers because the line generally uh, floats, and so I can follow uh, my rod tip to my bobber by just following the line through the water. So when I have a bobber down, I know which pole it was on type of deal if I've got multiple poles in the water. And then you have fluorocarbon. And a lot of the bass guys use fluorocarbon. It's supposed to dissipate the the light um, so it's less visible in the water. So what a lot of the guys in the walleye and even the trout world, they're using that primarily for leader material. 
if you were running a braided line, uh, a lot of guys would still tie on a leader to that braid to run a jig presentation or a, a jig and wrap presentation, that kind of stuff. Which will you know, obviously not change it so much, but it's enough that it's you know worth thinking about putting the leader on there. Yeah, and the braid the braid is good. I mean, I've um, I fished some some bodies of water where where we're fishing pretty deep, like we're running bottom bouncers in twenty five to forty foot of water. When you're running a bottom bouncer with monofilament, when you have a fish bite, it it has a lot of stretch in that forty foot of line that you have out. So um, with the braided line, you don't get that stretch. So a lot of times you feel the bite a little bit uh, better with that braided line and in, in that deeper water presentation. Um, you just have to kind of, again, kind of look at each situation and what's best for you for the average everyday guy. I mean, just, and, and I use primarily monofilament. Um, I think it works just fine. And for most presentations and a lot of the things that we do, especially even in a trout world, especially if you're throwing a Panther Martin or, you know, some, some kind of a, a spoon presentation, it's more of a reaction bite anyways. You know, the fish is hitting it from the back or the side. They're not following the line all the way down from the, from the water surface and going, oh, gosh, there's something on the end of this line. Yeah. So <laughs> um, I think monofilament, for the most part, it's, it's less expensive. It works for... 95 98% of the the people out there. And really it, it again comes down to preference and what you enjoy fishing, what you like fishing, your presentation on that, and not to get over over sensory with it because mm-hmm. it really doesn't matter all that much in the end game. Yeah, when I was out fishing yesterday, you know, I I had a couple rods that, you know, I had had uh, uh, some braided line on and I didn't feel like they were on the right pole. Like I was, there was on a, there was on a pole that was too, too uh, light. And so, you know, I was on the boat, you know, I'm snipping lines and, and taking one reel off and putting it onto a different pole and, and vice versa. And sometimes you just have to kind of change things up based on presentation. Um, I wanted to throw a, a crankbait up against the shore for a little while and see if I could get a, a bite going on there. And so I wanted a little bit longer pole and a little bit stiffer pole and I wanted to have that braided line. So um, don't be afraid to switch things up a little bit just because you bought a combo that had this reel on this pole, right. you know, and you, you were talking earlier, you know, you're going through your garage and I got, you know, four or five reels and rods that, you know, um, yeah, you're working with. I mean, it, if it doesn't feel like it fits it and it doesn't feel right to you, then switch it out until it does and, you know, make it happen. One of the great parts about Rocky Mountain Discount Sports is the fact that, A, there are people in this store that all they know and all they love is fishing and what they need and what to help you out with. They've got aisles and aisles and aisles. And if you find a, a, one of the lines that you really like, you bring your reel in and you guys will even string it up. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll spool the reels up if you want to bring them in. You know, we can strip the line off of there for you. We'll, we'll, we've got some well, we got a, quite a bit of different lines that, that are bulk on the mono side that are available, five cents a yard. So it's pretty inexpensive. And if you, you know, have us spool it, you don't have to worry about buying a spool and then only using a third of it. So um, the best, you know, economical way is, you know, bring it in, let us take care of it for you. Yeah, come on out and check them out. Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. It's Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. It's Drew and Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. And, Brian, one week of the four weeks of the Wyoming Walleye Stampede is in the books. 
Yeah, we uh, had a, a wet and a drizzly weekend, uh, but it was uh, fantastic results. There was a lot of fishing done, and if you go to the uh, Wyoming Walleye Stampede, you can find all the results and see pictures and everything. It's really cool, and, and I know that there were a lot of guys out there, and one thing that I noticed was the fishing equipment that these guys had, they had plenty of it because they knew that it was a, a tournament. It was a competition, so they had to make sure that they had quick change uh, type of, of equipment. Yeah, you know, you just never know kind of what the conditions are going to present and whether or not you're going to be able to pitch jigs, pitch cranks, troll, you know, uh, run slip bobbers. You kind of want to be able to, you know, change up the presentation based on weather, weather conditions, and location on the water that you are. And one thing that we really uh, saw a lot this weekend was the fact that rain gear was was a, a, a must-have. And we've been talking about that. Mm-hmm. It's springtime. You never know what's going to happen. So having that dry bag with dry clothes and your rain kit, I mean, it's a good idea. It was really consistent weather, and I think that probably helped uh, with the fishing aspect of it. There wasn't these big storm fronts and these big uh, thunderheads that were coming through. It was just flat raining drizzling the entire weekend so i think the weather the 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 pressure was uh was good so the fishing was consistent and once the guys found the fish i mean it was great but what we saw was i mean record weights we had a total weight to win the tournament of of over 63 pounds and on day two um a boat pulled up to a point and caught five fish within 40 minutes that was equal to just over 42 pounds of worth five fish they were a brother duo Mm -hmm. and they've been fishing glendo for 25 years they've been fishing the stampede since the beginning Mm -hmm. and this is the best year they've only finished fourth that's the highest yeah fourth place was their highest i I think they've won an event over at boys in or maybe it was Seminole, but they fish hard and they they cover a lot of ground and um, you know, when you when you fish hard and you have the techniques, and then throw a little bit of luck in there, and and uh, you know when that when that opportunity presents itself with those big fish, and you know everything goes right, and you land the fish, and and you get the hook set. I mean, uh, you end up winning a tournament. Driving around with you in the the way boat, we got to see everybody's presentation, everybody's philosophies, and every boat was different. Like there there were no two boats that were 100 percent the same. Because everybody has their own little, you know, click of how they feel it's going to work out for them. It's very interesting because you know we have to we're jumping in we're jumping in each one of those boats and some boats it's like you know jumping into you know a big old yacht right there's a lot of room on the floor and then there's other boats where it's like jumping into a pile of pixie sticks <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's rods everywhere and tackle everywhere and uh, it's interesting on you know how guys kind of manage their their tackle and their gear even even when they're they're in the heat of battle there. Yeah, it's it's you know it's a great lake. Lake it um, it's been it's been fishing really well. Uh, the uh, I was down yesterday and the water's come up almost uh, four feet in, wow. since last Sunday. So uh, there's an awful lot of water coming in, and that's gonna uh, definitely change the presentation of like what's going on in that lake. That that north end's super muddy right now. More trees floating through the through the lake, so you got to be careful with some debris as it's rising water and it's uh, running stuff off the shoreline but the fish are going to do some different things and the guys that you know did well this last tournament you know are going to be struggling to try to figure out the pattern of what what the fish are going to do for the next one it was very interesting because and and this is for every day if you 
go fish Pathfinder every day, it's a different fish almost every day. You're, you're mm-hmm. getting bites in different places. That was kind of one of the, the deals that the guys that were pre-fishing through the week were like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I was here. They were here. And then <laughs> Thursday, Friday, nothing. Saturday, couldn't find them anywhere. And right. these guys are, are fishermen. These guys are the ones that put the time in. They go out and they, they do a little research. Well, it was it was uh, interesting to see how the you know the the, the final days uh, wound down. There was out of 131 boats, there was only four boats that um, blanked out, just didn't catch a fish. And a couple of those, one of the teams didn't show up. I think a couple of teams tapped out a little early after day one performance. And but there was a lot of five fish limits all the way up through like a hundredth place. You know, there's so 100 out of 130 boats had limits of fish each day. Um, so that just tells you that it's a great fishery, and if, if you happen to put it all together and happen to catch a couple of big fish, then you know there's a chance. We talk a lot about Glendo because enjoy the walleye fishing and enjoy being able to get out on this this water. And you could fish a different part of Glendo every day, and still it would take you almost two weeks if you just focused on that area. Oh, if you just got on a shoreline and just started fishing shoreline to shoreline to shore and just kept going. I think it'd take you longer than two weeks. Yeah. I mean, it is just, there is there's so much structure, and, and especially with the water coming up, you're, you're going to see different little nooks and crannies that you've never seen before, you know, and we were impressed just like where we caught some of the anglers on this last tournament, you know. Some of these guys are just in the kind of the back of creek channels. Yeah. And then there's other guys that are on main lake points, and there's guys that are fishing the mud, and there's guys that are fishing down by the dam in the clear water. It's, um, the nice part is whatever presentation you like to do, you'll be able to find a fish that'll bite it on a portion of that lake somewhere. And that is one thing I think that I really took from the weekend was because I like to fish one way and you like to fish one way. doesn't mean either of us is wrong. It's just personal preference at that point. Right. Yeah. So now you just have to find a partner that can, uh, you know, fish the same way you want to fish. Right. Otherwise you're like, okay, me and you, you get your presentation till noon and then we're fishing my way after 12. Well, I, I don't care what anybody says. I know a 12 year old that is going to be my fishing partner forever. Noah. Yeah. Uh, he was with us on the boat. I've never seen a kid 12 years old talk fishing as much as that kid did yeah and it's it you know that's really what this is all about is that you know the camaraderie that you know the anglers have and and uh the 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 younger kids that are on the boats that are watching or even participating that just have the desire to just you know want to spend time on the water and get outdoors and not be behind a cell phone or behind a a game a gaming uh, console and uh yeah Noah was you know he he was bound and determined he was going to outfish us, and yeah. he, he he did catch the only walleye on our yeah. boat, but uh, I got the only crappie, so right. I, I think crappie are harder to catch. Right. Well, you know, in a situation like that, when you're fishing for walleye, if you pull out a crappie, I mean... <laughs> bonus that's, fish. Yeah, that's bonus. Uh, it, it was really good time, and, and just a couple of weeks, uh, what, June 3rd and 4th, is that right? Right. 2nd, 3rd, 4th? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the next round in Glendo that, that you still have openings for if people want to get involved. Yeah, we can just uh, go to the walleyestampede.com or message us through Facebook. Um, we can get you on through there. But um, it's going to be it's going to be a pretty exciting tournament because with this high water, uh, we really don't know where it's going to stop. And you know, everybody really tends to like fishing the trees, although I don't think they're going to get it that that high. But um, to, with this water management program, you know, if they start dropping the water again. You know, that's going to fish, throw off the fish, and these anglers are going to have to try to figure out what these fish are doing. So it's going to be going to be exciting times. Of course, you can stop on by Rocky Mountain Discount Sports, get all the equipment you need. 
It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Welcome in to Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. My name is Drew, and you can follow along and send us any messages that you may want answered with any of our guests or Game and Fish or Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. And today, ladies, this section is for you because there are a lot of ladies that love firearms and maybe don't know where to go to to shoot or maybe you don't know much about firearms and you want to get involved. Uh, I have Tia Wallen from A Girl and a Gun, which is has a, a chapter right here in Casper, and I appreciate you coming in and, and chat with us, Tia. No problem. This organization is, well, it's pretty basic from what it, the name is, A Girl and a Gun, where a bunch of ladies get together and shoot. Yep. We get together two times a month for our girls' night out is what we call it. We go out to the range and we get to do some target shooting. Um, sometimes we'll run some different drills to improve our skills. We work on everything from pistols and revolvers to the ladies want to. We'll bring out some rifles, some ARs, um, some shotguns, anything that the girls are interested in. I'm willing to give a try and we go out and see if we like it or not. What is your background in shooting? Have you been shooting for a long time? Is it? I haven't. Um, I grew up in a family that hunted, went hunting when I was younger once, shot a shotgun, and it hurt, and I didn't uh, like it. So I was like, nope, no more for me. Um, when I met my husband, his whole family, they target shoot for fun. They're big, avid hunters. So he kind of introduced me to that world a little bit. When we were living in Oklahoma, we had two small kids, and I was looking for any excuse to get out of the house oh, without bet. kids. Yeah. <laughs> and I happened to find a local chapter there of a girl in a gun, and I thought, what husband's going to complain about me going to shoot? Yeah. I mean, that's just an <laughs> added bonus now, right? It is. You guys probably, as a family, enjoy doing that. Yep. Now my kids are six and eight, and we are just starting to get them out on the range a little bit and they they love it and it's something we can go do together that we all enjoy and there's not one person complaining about I don't want to do it <laughs> if you didn't have parents that took you out shooting as a six or eight year old you know gun safety is something very important that you guys really teach your kids and I'm sure is some of the first things you talk about when someone new comes into your, your club yep we always go over the basic safety rules before every meeting, making sure that everybody knows what we expect, what the rules are, just so that they're all on the same page. And we don't want anyone to feel unsafe. I've had a few ladies show up and they just watch the first few times because they're they're nervous. They've never touched a gun. They've never been around it. I don't require anyone to shoot if they don't want to. I encourage them to come out and learn at least how to check and see if a gun is loaded. So if they come across one, they know what to do and then know how to safely empty it if they do find a loaded gun somewhere. That's one of the things that I think worries a lot of people is I have friends that, you know, ladies that they're like, I kind of want to learn how to shoot, but I'm I'm scared of the gun. Mm -hmm. Well, if you lay that gun on the table, it's not going to do anything to you. So as long as you're using safety measures and precautions, you'll be fine. Yep. In the wintertime, because I don't enjoy the cold, I'm not a cold weather lover at all, we'll meet indoors and we do, they're called dry fire exercises. So there's no ammunition at all. Mm -hmm. And we learn 
sometimes how to break the gun down completely. Sometimes we'll just learn how to pull the trigger in a nice smooth way. I have some training tools that with some CO2 cartridges, you can still feel the recoil and the slide come back. So you can get used to that feeling without having to worry about where a bullet is going to end up. Right. And being confident is a big part of shooting. It is. Learning how to shoot and being part of this a girl in a gun community has really made me feel a lot more confident. I'm confident in my ability to take care of myself, to defend myself and my kids if we go somewhere, to defend my home. I'm not worried about, oh no, what if something happens? I, yeah. I have a plan and a girl in a gun has helped me get to a point where I'm confident in that plan. How many members do you have here in the Casper area now? I currently have 10 members on my roster. Some of them are from out of town because we have four chapters in Wyoming, but we're all spread out pretty far. And I have seven women who show up on a fairly regular basis. When you guys show up, and I'm sure that you've seen from the beginning of when you all got together to now, the confidence boost that a lot of these ladies have had and and maybe the, the lack of fear. Out of the, my seven women who show up on a regular basis, only two had ever fired a pistol before wow. they came. Now all seven, they all have their own pistols. They make better groupings on their targets than I do sometimes. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I really love is how much our women are willing to share what they know and what they've learned. If a woman doesn't have a pistol the first time she comes, I always bring a whole bunch of different ones for them to look at, see the different sizes. My gals are great too. They have different pistols than I do. So they'll let people look at theirs, shoot theirs a couple times if they're interested, just to see what you like. Because guns aren't a one size fits all. Right. And it takes a while to figure out what you like and don't like about each one. And in Wyoming, where guns are so uh, prominent and, you know, lots of guns live in the state of Wyoming. As a matter of fact, there are more guns here than there are people. <laughs> yes. I assume now that you guys are really into the shooting and, and the firearms that uh, some ladies may go spend $800 on a pair of shoes, but you would much rather maybe check out a, a new firearm. It's Yeah. For me, it took me a while. My husband bless his soul. He offered advice that sometimes I took and sometimes I didn't. But we went through probably six or seven different pistols before I found one I really, really like Mm -hmm. um, that fits me well, that meets all the different needs I have. I have one pistol that I use for defensive type shooting in classes. Um, That's something that I could carry on me every day. And then I have another one that I'm setting up to do some competition shooting because that's a whole different gamut. Right. And so at our girl in a gun meetings, we can kind of tailor it too for what your interests are. If somebody's really into competition, we can work on dialing in so that they're hitting that bullseye every single time. If somebody's just wanting to know how to be competent in a defensive situation, you don't have to hit the bullseye time after time. You just need to know where in a body is gonna right. it's gonna make a difference. Even just the sport of of competitive shooting for females has really grown, but the fact that people want to be safe and 2020 I think did a lot of that where you know people didn't know what was happening. And I remember the lines at gun stores being out the door because people just didn't know. But I'm sure that it really helped that you know women are now at the front of the line when it comes to firearms. 
we've grown as a population in the gun industry as female shooters, the different companies within the firearms industry, everything from the gun manufacturers all the way down to the holster companies are recognizing things need to be done a little different when it comes to the female shooter. Um, What works for a man to holster a gun and carry on his side doesn't necessarily work for a woman, just the way our bodies are built. So you have different companies like um, Filster, who's out of Minnesota. They've made a whole new holster that works great for appendix carry, which a lot of men have gone to now as well. But for women, it works because we've got kind of some soft, squishy middles, and it's a lot easier to carry and conceal a gun in a squishy part than on maybe your hips that there's a bone there and you can't push it in anywhere. (laughs) It's hard to hide that gun hanging out on the side. Well, it it sounds like a fantastic uh, program. A Girl on a Gun, go to girlonagun.org, and you can find the Wyoming, the Casper, Wyoming chapter and become a member. And how often, you said two times a month, but is it like the same night every week of the month? Or Yep, we meet on Monday nights. Um, it's usually the second and fourth Monday of the month. In the summertime, sometimes we have to wiggle those dates a little bit because of travel, and sometimes oh, right. the range does have events going on they're kind enough that they gift us a membership out there so we don't have to pay a membership fee or a range fee when we go out there every night that's great now what is entailed to become a member is it a a long process or is it pretty short it's pretty short if you go online there's a section up at the top of the website that says become a member you fill that out it's fifty dollars for the year for all the benefits you get with that is amazing. We get a lot of vendor discounts from companies like Walther from Cold War Concealment, which is a holster company. They give us discounts that we have on our vendors page. You get access to a shooting journal that's been put together by Tatiana Whitlock. She's our director of training and she she's huge for people that know the gun industry. She works with Walther and she has put together exercises for us for every month that we go through. That's great. I mean, and it's great. And I think it's important that if you want to have a gun to know how to use it, and this is a great way to not feel ashamed that maybe you don't know as much as someone else because you come in and you're an equal. Yep. Sometimes when you go out on the range with men, it becomes a very competitive environment. And for women who maybe that's not their vibe like they don't want to be competitive they just want to be competent and they need to be encouraged going out with a group of women is a whole different aspect of because they want you to be better so they're trying to help lift you up instead of saying well you hit there but watch what I can do oh yeah I mean there are nights we do get a little competitive <laughs> but it's but, just between the girls but it's for it's all in fun is there an age limit there is not if somebody has a young daughter that they want to come with, their membership, I believe, I would have to double check, but I think that's only $15. They just have to have an adult come with them. Okay. So as long as a parent is confident that their kid can listen to safety instructions and follow those safety rules, they are welcome to come and join us anytime. And it may be a great idea to, the, the earlier you get them involved, the more comfortable they'll be in the future. Yep. All right. It's Tia Wallen with uh, girlandagun.org is where you can go check it out. I encourage you, if you're interested at all, 
to uh, hit her up, agagcasperyo at gmail.com, or you can get all the information there on the website. Tia, thank you. Thank you. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors with Drew Kirby. If you have a question, want to make a comment, or have an idea for a show topic, message us on the My Country mobile app. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors.